All right. Hello to everybody. This is the Oregon Poison Center with our now quarterly uh, journal club, theme journal club. It's October 2021. And today we're talking about sort of um, a little bit of a global toxicology with methanol poisoning outbreaks. Talk about a few of them that have happened across the globe. Some approach to how we can handle them perhaps better in the future. And then approach to some things that are done internationally to try to prevent blindness, but less so here. So we'll finish up with those few articles. We're going to start out right in our own backyard with the methanol that's been a problem with hand sanitizers in the era of COVID. And to start us off with uh, that um, article, we have our emergency medicine resident telling us about the MMWR article, uh, Chip O'Neill, go ahead. So this first paper is a case series coming out of Arizona and New Mexico, just a few months after the COVID pandemic outbreak started in March of 2020. So this uh, paper is looking at methanol cases over the months of May and June in the year of 2020. And the paper starts with some of the regulations that come down from some of the federal regulatory bodies like the CDC and the FDA regarding uh, hand sanitizers and what the ingredients should be thereof. So the CDC recommends that alcohol-based hand sanitizer should contain at least 60% ethanol or 70% isopropyl alcohol. Um, those concentrations are increased when in the healthcare setting. And then the FDA specifically says that alcohol-based hand sanitizers should not contain methanol. Um, we'll see that that is not um, adhered to. Um, so in June, on June 30th of 2020, um, the Arizona and New Mexico uh, public health folks start to coordinate with the CDC as they see increasing cases of methanol poisoning due to ingestion of alcohol-based hand sanitizers. The clinical features that they started to recognize and group together were um, headache, blurred vision, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, loss of coordination, and decreased level of consciousness. Um, and they note that these folks tend to have a anion gap metabolic acidosis, they tend to have seizures, and if left untreated, they can have blindness or methanol poison can even be fatal. They also note that the direct, uh, the actual toxicity from the methanol is, is due to formic acid, which is the metabolite as the methanol is um, processed through the alcohol and acetaldehyde dehydrogenase. Um, so they get this formate, which is a toxic anion metabolite, metabolite, and it's toxic to the optic nerve in particular. And that's how we get a lot of the uh, blindness. So this case series, um, what they did was they reviewed 62 calls that came into this poison center over the months of May and June in 2020. Um, they characterized these calls and they came up with 15 cases of alcohol-based hand sanitizer um, associated with methanol poisoning. All of these patients had reportedly ingested hand sanitizer and all of them were hospitalized. So here's some of the demographics and um, kind of groupings of labs, uh, commonly labs commonly seen in, in this cohort. So the mean age of was 43 years old, 13 of the 15 uh, people in the study were male. All of, all of them had a history of swallowing 
uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizer. They all had a blood methanol level that ranged from at least 21, and some, some of them were over 500. All of them had an anion gap metabolic acidosis ranging from 17 to 49. Bicarb levels were from under 5 to 13. pHs ranged from 6.7 to 7.25, so all of them were acidotic. Six of them exhibited seizures. Uh, all of them received fomepazole. Nine of them received hemodialysis or CRRT. And seven of the patients were ultimately discharged. Four of them had no sequelae, but three of them had visual impairments. Four of the patients died, um, and three of those had seizures. And then there was a group of patients that were still remaining in the hospital at the time of this publication. And kind of the last pertinent piece of this paper is an illustrative case. Um, it's a it's a fictitious case, but it, it illustrates a good um, case of methanol poisoning nonetheless, and it's very short. So it's uh, a man aged 44 years old is evaluated at a healthcare facility for recent onset of visual impairment. The patient reported drinking an unknown quantity of alcohol-based hand sanitizer during the few days before seeking medical care. Initial labs were notable for a blood methanol concentration of 97 with a metabolic acidosis. Um, and anion gap was measured at 32. Bicarb is measured at under 6 with an arterial pH of 7.09. This gentleman's clinical course is complicated by seizures, and the patient was treated with fomepazole as well as hemodialysis. He recovered after a six-day hospitalization uh, for acute methanol poisoning and was discharged with near total vision loss. So this is the conglomeration of cases that comes out of New Mexico and Arizona. Um, over the months of May and June in 2020. And that's the conclusion of this paper. All right, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just illustrative of given the right set of circumstances or the wrong set of circumstances, how you can have an outbreak of methanol poisoning. And this is a, a phenomenon that repeats itself around the globe in different places for different reasons. In this case, it was sort of COVID related with the excessive amount of hand sanitizer that in the first place should not have had methanol in it, but did, it was improperly formulated. And then people were misusing it, of course, by drinking it instead of just rubbing it on their hands, rubbing it on their hands would not have caused the problem. But even in a, you know, a, a developed country like the United States, uh, where everybody got formepazole and many of the sick ones got uh, dialysis, uh, you know, four of these patients died and three were left with visual impairment, which is like half without what it characterizes quite serious outcomes. So that leads us into the second paper here is, uh, is there a difference between those two treatment modalities between fomepazole and ethanol, especially when it involves a mass outbreak? And uh, yet in another uh, fully developed country in Norway, um, I'm gonna turn this one over to our critical care fellow, Sarah, Wheeler to discuss. This isn't about a Norwegian outbreak. This is the Czech outbreak. All right, thank you. I stand corrected. I saw one of the people. <laughs> Did I do the wrong paper? Uh, so yeah, this paper is called uh, Fomepazole versus Ethanol in the Treatment of Acute Methanol Poisoning, Comparison of Clinical Effectiveness. So, just in terms of some background, we've already kind of discussed it, but methanol poisoning is pretty common worldwide. It's essentially it's a cheap substitute for alcohol. 
um, the two kind of main treatments used um, sort of medication or chemical treatments are fomepazole and ethanol, um, although uh, patients are often also dialyzed or given bicarbonate to correct their acidosis. Um, ethanol essentially binds the alcohol dehydrogenase and it blocks the um, uh, metabolism to formaldehyde, which is the um, sort of actively toxic chemical. Um, you need a blood alcohol level around 22 millimoles per liter. Fomepazole, on the other hand, is about a thousand times higher affinity for ADH than um, um, ethanol. So, unlike, um, and it's not an, a CNS depressant, it's a little bit easier to dose. It has more predictable pharmacokinetics, um, so you don't have to do measurement of serum levels, and it can be used in kids. Um, when this paper was published, there really wasn't any data that sort of proved or even like significantly suggested superiority of one over the other. There was a study out of Norway that showed that they mainly used fomepazole and comparing um, sort of more in hospital mortality rates, they were thought not to be too different from uh, the Czech data where they predominantly were using alcohol. Uh, it's very difficult. You can't really do a randomized control trial on a topic like this very easily. I'm certain in the US it would not get an IRP approval. Um, and so most of these studies are sort of retrospective and sort of looking back and trying to do their best to um, learn as much from these mass outbreaks as possible. So this was a Czech group and there was an outbreak of methanol poisonings in 2012 to 2014. Sounds like some bad guys were putting methanol in um, alcoholic beverages, um, I guess, to make money. Um, and it's designed as sort of a cross-sectional case series, and then it has this sort of nested quasi-case control study um, as well to try to sort of get at some of the confounding uh, based on the non-randomized nature. So they basically looked at initially 137 cases of methanol poisoning from September of 2012 to 2014. Um, the patients were identified by either having a history of methanol ingestion uh, and a serum methanol level of greater than 6.2 millimoles per liter or a historical slash clinical suspicion, methanol greater than the upper detectable limit of normal and sort of an acid-based status with that matched that with a pH less than 7.3, bar cup less than 20, anion gap greater than 20. And they were ideally identified on admission to the hospitals. Um, it was a little vague on like how they, which hospitals and where, et cetera. Um, they got all the clinical data, um, demographic data from the patients. And then they, the other outcomes they looked at were uh, neuro um, and ophthalmologic outcomes on admission and discharge. Um, they assessed for toxic neuropathy of the optic nerve and for CNS sequelae. Um, basically, if there were suggestive symptoms, then the patients underwent CT MRI to look for necrosis or uh, basal ganglia hemorrhage. Um, patients also had all the usual lab analyses that we would expect. Um, the quasi-case control, so what they did is among the 137 patients, they ended up having to exclude 
I think 37 of them for various reasons, but um, 25 got fomepazole, and then the rest either got alcohol or, or nothing. Um, and so they took those 25 patients who did get fomepazole, and they tried to sort of match patients who didn't get fomepazole who were as sick as the patients who got fomepazole. Because what has been noted is that because there is no, um, there's not a plentiful fomepazole in the Czech Republic, essentially they were using it as sort of a, giving it to the sickest patients. And so they tried to sort of match the fomepazole patients to the sickest patients who only received alcohol to try to get at some of that bias. So they took those 25 patients and then they matched them to controls who didn't get pomepazole based on age, gender, uh, dose, time, um, since ingestion, sort of the poison severity score, GCS, MAP, pH, um, bicarb lactate, creatinine, methanol level, ethanol level, uh, formate lactate um, to try to kind of do a better comparison of the effects of the fomepazole itself. In terms of the, the actual interventions, so patients got the treatment protocol per the AACT guidelines, so they ended up getting uh, bicarbonate for acidosis. They um, got dialysis if it was indicated. I won't go through like all the like different protocols specifically. And then they, got ethanol um, or they got fomepazole and a bolus dose form 15 mg per kg. And then the way it worked was sort of a, a prioritized delivery system where um, patients would initially, if the fomepazole was not available, they would get the ethanol. And if it was available, um, but there was not plentiful fomepazole available, then the treatment was prioritized for patients with higher methanol levels and overall more sort of acidotic labs. And then um, in areas where they did not have a lot of fomepazole, when the patient sort of stabilized, the fomepazole would be stopped and then they would switch over to ethanol. So when the methanol, for example, hit a level of um, 230 mg per deciliter and their pH had normalized, then they would um, continue treatment with ethanol. And this was sort of all in the uh, effort to try to sort of conserve fomepazole. And then everyone got some folate. Um, they used sort of standard comparative statistical analysis. And they also did a, in the sort of nested case control study, they did um, bivariate linear regression or null logistic regression. Um, and the results are, I guess, kind of interesting, but not that interesting. <laughs> um, so they ended up including 100 patients and uh, they weren't able to get long-term data on 29. Uh, 25 patients got from, um, I'll actually go um, share my screen and that way you can see chart it's pretty small but uh there you go so 25 patients got from epizol but um it's important to note that 64 percent of those patients 
had an ethanol bolus either prior to receiving the fomepazole, either by EMS, um, and then 8% received ethanol after the fomepazole bolus. Um, 68 patients got um, just ethanol, and 30% of those had it given also in the pre-hospital timeframe, and then seven got neither ethanol in the hospital nor fomepazole but they may have gotten hemodialysis or bicarbonate as indicated, and they may have gotten ethanol prior to be uh, coming to the hospital. Uh, so this table one just sort of shows the basic demographics. Um, you can kind of look at the bottom where the bolded p-values are um, to kind of see which things are different between the two groups. Um, in general, the fomepazole group just was sicker they had a lower pH, they had a lower bicarb, they had a, a higher base deficit, they had a higher anion gap, they had an elevated creatinine. Um, and this is sort of not surprising based on the fact they were prioritizing the fomepazole for sicker patients. Um, and I find these tables a little challenging to read, but, um, and then this was looking just at the 25 fomepazole patients and then the uh, 25 uh, controls that were chosen. So for, for this nested case control study, and you can see that in all, basically all of the same indices, you lose that significance of the p-value um, for these parameters of sort of severity of intoxication. And this is a weird side table. And then this table is sort of looking at the different clinical features on admission, treatments, the length of ICU stay, and the outcomes um, in the total population. Um, and what you can see is that uh, patients who are in the fomepazole groups had a higher uh, poisoning severity score and worsening worse visual disturbances and worse dyspnea, they are also more likely to be intubated. Um, and interestingly, they were also more likely to have no sequela, which is to say that they were less likely to have sequela. So that's sort of, a, I guess, a positive outcome there. Um, but there was no difference in ICU length of stay, um, and there was no difference in um, survival rate with or without sequela. And this just showed sort of what other treatments the patients got. So um, if you look in the fomepazole group, you can see that, um, you know, there were relatively similar levels of patients who required alkanization, uh, similar numbers of patients who received hemodialysis. Um, I don't care too much about the folate. You can, you can see that the, um, other sort of clinical values like GCS map that kind of thing really weren't too different between the groups, however. Um, one thing to note, though, is that um, there, 
And then, yeah, the length of stay was the same. Um, of patients who did survive with sequela, um, actually the most predictive piece of information was just their pH um, on arrival. Not. And that's from the univariate multivariate logistic regression. So, I think sort of my question is, was this study really studying what they were trying to study? <laughs> and I think the answer is, is no. Um, there's just a lot of crossover in terms of intervention and um, the fact that there were so many patients who also received ethanol, I think it's just really hard to say too much about sort of the um, whether fomepazole or is better or worse. Also, th these are just pretty small numbers. Um, they didn't really talk about you know how the study was powered, and so I mean there may have been a trend toward no sequelae um, in patients who received fomepazole, but I don't know if I would kind of interpret that. Um, super significantly. And then I think the other thing is just that, you know, there's still going to be a lot of confounding in this study because there is no randomization. And so, you know, it's even if you do this sort of nested case control study and you try as hard as you can to, you know, match patients, it's still, you're still going to be introducing a fair amount of confounding just by the fact that sicker patients are getting prioritized for one treatment over another. Um, and my guess is there's probably a lot of confounding based on other aspects of the Czech health system that I don't understand. Um, so, and then one piece of data I didn't show is that there were no um, sort of negative outcomes related to the delivery of femepazole versus ethanol to patients. I guess um, there was one meta-analysis that had shown more pa patients being more likely to have CNS depression requiring intubation um, among those who received ethanol versus fomepazole, and um, that was not seen in this study, uh, nor were there any clear, like, other negative outcomes that would be hypothesized to be associated with either fomepazole or ethanol. So, um, and it doesn't really, to me, answer the, I mean, it's, I guess, a pragmatic way to try to get at this question, but in the Czech Republic, it sounds like they just use fomepazole if they have it, and then when the patient gets better or they're not that sick, then they use ethanol. And so I'm wondering if in the Czech Republic, if they got a bunch of fomepazole, would they use it or would they, you know, it seems like that's sort of just the, the chosen treatment in general. Like I've never, I've never actually seen ethanol used in the US for this purpose. So um, I guess it's, it shows that there maybe there's not like a huge difference, but it seems like the possible negatives of giving people alcohol and having to do the monitoring and everything would sort of out, that would make me more likely to want to use Femepazole, even if the benefit was a little bit marginal. Yeah, thanks. Um, again, it was, I think they tried to make some 
lemonade out of some lemons there. They had this horrible tragedy. They tried to match the patients that were obviously sicker and being triaged to get to methazole if they were in the worst state with similar patients that got ethanol. And of course, there was sort of a mixed bag where some got ethanol and got the methazole. And, you know, so there's a lot of crossover variability. I think some of the other take home messages are that the ones who did poorly had terrible pHs on arrival. They were all in the sixes. They said 692 was sort of the median pH associated with visual impairment. Um, of their 100 patients they intensely studied, like 21% died and uh, 30 were left with visual impairment. So that's half. That's not different than the fifth, seven out of 15 in the Arizona, New Mexico outbreak. So even under the best of circumstances, things go poorly if this is delayed to recognition and delayed to getting the optimal treatment, which is fomepazole. We used to treat with alcohol here and certainly in rural areas, um, ethanol loading was easier to figure out and get, you know, you just had to get someone to go down to the bottle shop and get a little alcohol and do a little math and we gave it to people. We still at times still have to do that in our most rural communities, but it does block, although not same coefficient that Fomepazole does, Fomepazole, you get a loading dose and you're done for uh, 12 hours and you don't have to think about a follow-up infusion or measuring any levels. But um, it was an attempt to um, sort out this one outbreak that they had. I'll mention one line that's probably easily overlooked, but they do sort of in their long treatment protocol, the last line is that corticosteroids were not administered uh, to any of the patients or any of the patients with visual problems. We'll get back to that later. I do want to jump over to uh, Ruby's and tell us about our next study. Uh, this one is, I believe, from Norway this time. Sorry, I got those out of order. Um, this is sort of a, a similar outbreak, but they looked more at the long-term sequelae. Looking backwards six years later, you know, what, what was there anything here to predict who was going to do worse than other folks? So. Uh, Ruby, I'm going to mute us all at the table except Ruby, so don't get any feedback. Uh, the study was actually in Estonia. Oh, okay. Methanol poisoning <laughs> and long term sequelae, a six year follow up after a large methanol outbreak, which is really interesting that they were able to follow up on a cohort of people who were exposed to this methanol. So in September 2001, there was an illegal outbreak in which this employee stole some methanol from this animal feeding uh, industry in which he mixed it and then sold it as distilled vodka. Of that, 147 patients were admitted to the hospital with a suspicion of methanol consumption. 111 of those patients had a detectable concentration and were subsequently admitted. Overall, 68 patients had died, 25 while they were hospitalized, and 43 patients had died prior to uh, arrival to a hospital. These patients were treated with sodium bicarb if they were initially acidotic. They were also started on an ethanol infusion, uh, and some were dialyzed and some intubated and placed on a mechanical, uh, mechanical ventilation. Of these patients that they were able to contact six years later, they categorized them into three groups. So in the first group, it was the survivors who did not have any sequelae, and they had 66 patients. In the second group, it was they were survivors who had sequelae upon discharge from the initial hospitalization, 
with 20 patients, and then the third group were the ones who had died uh, after being discharged from that initial hospitalization. So patients had answered this questionnaire regarding their former and present disease, drinking habits, uh, et cetera. So all the survivors who, uh, all the survivors had a neurological and, um, and ophthalmological evaluation, and they were able to compare it to their records from six years ago. So on follow-up, 26 of the 86 survivors who initially um, were discharged were now dead. <laughs> 19 were from initially from group one, which those were the ones who did not have any sequelae, and seven were from group two who had sequelae. Of those, the majority of causes of their death were from alcohol intoxication or cardiac, whether that be cardiomyopathy, MI, um, and also traumatic cases were the, were the most common causes of death. Of the patients that they were able to track down, 27 of those patients they were able to contact and examine. A third of those from that group um, were, a, a third of the patients they were able to track down were from the, uh, the first group and a quarter, sorry, so a third from the initial group one they were able to track down and a quarter from group two they weren't able to contact. So the majority of patients who survived with sequelae had visual disturbances, so 18 of that 20. During their follow-up contact, four of those 18 patients, uh, the disturbance was permanent. They had either optical nerve atrophy, temporal pallor of the optic nerve head, visual field deficits, deficits and loss of visual acuities. Three out of the 20 patients discharged had neurological impairment that was categorized as polyneuropathy and encephalopathy. They had ataxia, they had a positive Romberg in which they were unable to stand upright uh, with their eyes closed, and that was permanent. One patient who was discharged initially without any sequelae ended up developing neurological impairment. So they also asked the patients more regarding their drinking habits to see if that had changed many. Um, very few people, it changed their drinking habit. Only a handful of them either stopped drinking completely or reduced their drinking. As for like the prognosis, uh, they had summarized with this that you know, it was a relation between degree of metabolic acidosis that they had and also their increased PCO2 with their acidosis from their decreased respiratory compensation, their methanol concentration and their coma were all prognostics of, you know, who would do well throughout their course of hospitalization and who would, you know, who would ultimately have permanent sequelae. So, Additionally, they found that there were also patients who were discharged without any visual disturbances, ended up developing it later on, six years later on. And whether this is due to they didn't have a full evaluation during their initial, or it was a gradual onset even after discharge. Additionally, likewise, eight out of 22 patients developed neurological uh, complications as well. But these were generally seen in patients who have had excessive alcohol use and who continue to drink. So overall, the, the death toll was high. Like it was 30% even amongst the survivors. And this was slightly higher in the patients 
had developed sequelae in the first place. There really wasn't any change in their drinking habits, even after this traumatic hospitalization. And overall, this is a very high vulnerable group. Like, it sounds it like, it sounds like um, the initial methanol ingestion was unknown. Like they didn't know that this was methanol um, that was involved in the, the alcohol, if you will. And I think the also interesting point, though, is that this is six years later and the court, you know, the complications that they're seeing now, they're not able to confirm really if that is from the initial. I, I think we can, you know, we have an idea, but also within that six years. If there were other incidences, but really interesting that they were able to follow up on. On a cohort from six years previously. I think it's one of the advantages of a national health system, like probably exists in, in countries like uh, in Scandinavia and the Baltic. Um, yeah, I think one of the other things that's probably not mentioned here, but was written up in their original article, is a fair number of the cases got treated with pre-hospital ethanol. It wasn't sort of a usual thing that they did, but they kind of quickly realized what was going on. And while people were being transferred to the ultimate tertiary care hospital, if such a concept exists. Uh, over there is they got alcohol in these aid stations or alcohol actually in the ambulances or people actually gave their friends alcohol to treat them since they knew that was the answer. But still, despite all that, um, within this system, the mortality is high, visual acuity remains high. And I think one of the take home messages is maybe these folks should have some assessment, not a comprehensive, but some assessment of the visual acuity. What's their best corrected vision? Someone looks in their eyes, or we'll talk about another simple thing that could be done in a few minutes, the OCT tests that could be done to get a baseline of who's got what as far as visual acuity problems. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, when these outbreaks occur, usually from illicit alcohol being sold, either cheaply, if it's cheaper, or illicitly to avoid other uh, things, it's, it's hard to do. There, there was a group that eventually, including authors from these studies and elsewhere, got together and in Clintox, much like XTRIP, rather than going over every single epidemic that has ever occurred, they kind of sat down, came up with some consensus statements saying, what's the best way to han handle this? It's sort of like the XTRIP of methanol, uh, global outbreak epidemics. And so to talk about that, we have our fellow Matt. Hey guys. Um, so essentially, as, as Zane was saying, this group, group got together of people from around the entire world, over like a dozen individuals, to make these consensus statements. And they, they specifically mentioned that this paper came out shortly after the XTRIP um, guidelines, which is a consortium between toxicologists and nephrologists to discuss like when you dialyze someone and what kind of dialysis you should use. Um, so there were guidelines that came out for methanol, but they saw a specific need that those recommendations didn't really address what to do in, in settings where you have multiple people in a community or across a nation that have a need for treatment for methanol poisoning and how to approach this, especially in resource limited uh, settings. So that was the ultimate goal was to try to figure out like what's the best way to triage all these patients and like, even how do you find them when there is a concern for an outbreak. So they got they got, they got everyone together um, 
and they try to figure out what, what are the issues that need to be addressed. And essentially, they started by started off by asking this entire panel a series of questions in order to figure out some definitions and some like, kind of overarching topics that they needed to address in the study. And some, although there were like a dozen questions, um, some of the important ones are like one: what considered what's considered a methanol poisoning outbreak? How do you diagnose methanol poisoning? How do you administer the antidotes? How do you stratify who gets what antidote? And how do you decide like who to transfer or when to transfer? And those are some of the questions they went about asking all these um, individuals. Some of the issues that they kind of identified early on is that although in, in America and a lot of other countries, alcohol is widely available, in some nations around the world, alcohol is actually banned and it's like nationally illegal. Um, so, and, and a lot of people like might use other types of alcohol as a way of getting drunk. They don't realize they drink methanol or kind of kind of like, like homemade stuff. And then people don't come to the hospital because of fears of getting punished. So then they have delayed presentation. They looked at like in those settings where that kind of stuff happens, like how do we as a society figure out how to identify these individuals? Some other issues they, they identified were that even in these large outbreaks, or where there's an ongoing outbreak and you have people who are at high risk of exposure, even when they might have minimal symptoms at the time or just signs of intoxication, how do you stratify what to treat them with um, because of the of what we know is a severe risk of toxicity in any significant ingestion of methanol? Um, and then as we've discussed earlier, you can have significant um, morbidity that is essentially permanent once it develops. Um, so they kind of went through all these different questions and they went through what's called a Delphi method. And I, this is kind of like, it goes on one of these things I think we kind of often brief over in a lot of these papers, um, but essentially what, what it worked to try and offer some clarity is that once they had this consensus group together and they identified what questions they wanted to ask, um, ask they had all these experts then come together and present the evidence that they found to support um, what they felt were important regarding these different questions. And then everyone presented the evidence and they all voted on the consensus statements. And then after the voting, um, they form an estimate of what their relative desired, like, like um, recommended recommendation levels are, like one, two, three, four, and like A, B, C, D. Um, I guess it's only sorry one through three, and then A through D. And then they talk about it, and then they vote again. And then after a number of series of this like reiterative process, they come together and make these final recommendations. The assumption is that in doing so is that when you have a, a panel come together and they discuss the topic, they're able to form consensus statements that are. Um, that, that, that draw upon everyone's expertise and, is, and it forms something that that's rational and reasonable and is um, able to be implemented that kind of like averages things towards the mean, which is generally an effective process in these things where are kind of, um, there's a lot of variable like inner, inner person practice so that in individuals who are not on this panel can have some guidelines to draw upon. So essentially, that's how the whole like system worked. They then presented their their idea at uh, the European Toxicologic Conference in 2016 to try and get some more ideas. And then once they had all the ideas together, they developed their um, their opinions on the various matters. So to go through in a stepwise fashion, um, and I'm going to kind of combine the results and the discussion together since it's a little repetitive in the paper. But essentially, they found that in what what they wanted to define them is as a methanol poisoning outbreak is essentially whenever there's a community kind of baseline level of methanol poisoning and there's a significant increase above that, that's considered an outbreak. Given that 
very frequently there's like no one who has methanol poisoning. Even one patient could be considered overwhelming the resources. And they felt that that was probably too liberal of a threshold. So they said essentially, essentially that um, three victims in a geographic area within a short period of time is considered a methanol outbreak. Now, once a methanol outbreak is identified, they then suggested that the local health authorities are contacted and it's the government's responsibility to try and identify additional people who are affected by this outbreak, given the discussion earlier about the high risk of morbidity should people be exposed to methanol. Um, the, the additional goal was that in addition, um, given that there's a number of people who might be poisoned, that this could help identify people who might otherwise be um, hesitant to, to present to the hospital. Um, then afterward, they would try to figure out like, how do you triage all these people who are poisoned? And they essentially developed a triage criteria, looking at level of consciousness, pH and PCO2 and risk stratified people kind of into, into a number of different categories based on those facets to, uh, to uh, determine what the risk of death was, what the risk of sequelae were, and then how do you use each of those various variables to try and figure out like, when to administer which antidote and when to pursue extracorporeal clearance, that is dialysis or CRRT. Um, so for the administration of antidotes, they actually did not use the triaging process. And they, they said, or they recommended that in any setting where you're concerned that someone has exposure to a toxic alcohol, specifically methanol, that you should treat them. And um, since there's a wide heterogeneity about what hospitals, especially in developing countries, half a methazole versus alcohol, that you should use whatever is available. Um, and so essentially, essentially use what you have approach. In the setting where you do have the methazole, um, they suggested that people who are more severely poisoned, pregnant people, and those under 14 receive priority for the fomepazole. Um, and that I know sometimes we talk about in resource limited settings or in situations where our needs ex exceed the medications we have that we might dosage adjust or uh, give some people like less than what we'd otherwise would um, to, for, from a utilitarian perspective. But essentially, they could not come to a consensus in this in this group. And ultimately, they recommend that if you're going to give them Epazole, you just give the normal dosing. Um, the, then in the setting of when to treat with um, dialysis, that's an even more resource limited setting. And they essentially stated that they, you should prioritize people with visual disturbances. Um, and then they re-stratified those previously categorized people. And unless you have a picture in front of you, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of boxes to look at. Um, but the, the ones that who should receive priority are those who are relatively sick um, and at a relative high, a relatively high risk of, of sequelae, including those with a low pH under 6.74, um, or have a coma with a higher pH, um, or th that group should receive dialysis. And then there was a lot of like lack of consensus on who the next group is. So you start with that group since they have the most to benefit from that dialysis. And then it's kind of like a whatever you whatever um, you think is best since there was no consensus, hard consensus statements. Um, and then the final consideration is like when, when do you transfer these people or do you transfer for dialysis? Um, and ultimately, they felt that um, unless you can rap rapidly and expeditiously get someone onto dialysis via transfer, that you really shouldn't shouldn't be transferring people to other hospitals. Um, 
and that generally the, the more stable patients should be transferred for treatment rather than the less stable people um, to help the most people who can otherwise be helped. So I think overall they, they I don't know how much more they gain from what would be a common sense approach to the situation um, by <laughs> convening this entire panel. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that like three people alone would be considered a methanol outbreak. Um, and this kind of goes into like what we described as like a, a incident response situation is like when when, a, when an event happens, whether it's like a biohazard or like a chemical weapons event that, um, or even like multiple patients coming to the ER that once you exceed your available resources, it's essentially an outbreak and it should be handled as such. And then you kind of go from like doing as much as you can for each person to trying to triage and divvy up the resources as possible. Um, but I think it's interesting that they did draw upon that previous article about the um, ethanol and what was that first country, the Czech um, situation um, about using fomepazole versus alcohol. And they weren't, they, they weren't able to find any additional information either that said that one was better than the other generally for treatment and just use what you have. So I think you analysis when you have it in favor of the simple people. But. Yeah, I mean, it was a big group. They got together and they had this long discussion and votes and things. It's almost like Congress deciding something or not. And, you know, it's basically use what you have, three people or more, it's a critical event. And, you know, um, and their definition for who can have Memphisol is like severely ill, like less than 6.74. These are people who are like profoundly acidemic. And quite frankly, I think in this country, our threshold would be in the low sevens, you know, seven two would probably be the ones we get excited about. We wouldn't let um, anybody else, but we have a higher access to Mepresol than other places do. I think the notion of using alcohol and the, the note that if you have pre-hospital alcohol, that probably is use. I use what you have, common sense thing, and they kind of reiterate it here as they did in their original you know, triage protocol for Estonia. But these outbreaks keep happening all over the world, Europe, Asia, the United States, and elsewhere. What I wanted to do in the second half is kind of drill down on the visual problem. First, who is likely to get visual sequela? And then finally, how do we assess it? And then are there things that we can do or things that some people around the world are doing that we're not doing here right now in the US? So First up, to look at sort of the predictors uh, of methanol poisoning visual outcomes, we have our fellow Joe. Hey, can you guys hear me? All right. So my, my paper was titled Methanol Poisoning Predictors of Visual Outcomes. So basically, this asked, can laboratory markers of methanol ingestion and subsequent toxicity serve as predictors of visual outcome in patient? So this was a retrospective medical review of 122 patients in a cluster outbreak of methanol poisoning in uh, India. Now, this is important because apparently there is lots of these cluster outbreaks of methanol poisoning in India, and it happens quite a bit. There's a lot, a lot of uh, morbidity and mortality associated with it. Uh, methyl alcohol toxicity can damage the optic nerve, leading to blindness or vision defects. And they wanted to see if there was any laboratory values or any other predictive values that might help determine, uh, like, might be a better screening tool 
for to see if there's a relationship between signs and symptoms in lab markers and the outcome of methanol poisoning. So what they did was uh, this was done at a single hospital, and the population was this outbreak that happened from July 1st through July 30th, 2009 in India. Uh, so the inter or the exposed were people with either a, so there's two groups of exposed people who had a history of ingesting of illicit liquor, a blood methanol concentration greater than 10 and or an osmolar gap greater than 10 or another the other group of people that were uh, included in the exposure were people with a history or clinical suspicion of methanol poisoning with at least two of the following a pH less than 7.3 a serum bicarbonate of less than 20 or all's molar gap of less than 10. And all these patients were treated with folonic acid, thiamine, uh, peroxidine, and methylcobalamine supplements. Uh, and also I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, they had some uh, um, kind of a treatment algorithm to see if they needed to uh, be dialysized, but uh, dialyzed, but uh, eventually, 83 required at least one cycle of hemodialysis and 31 required immediate hemodialysis in intensive care unit. And of those 10 of these patients that they looked at died. So what they were looking at were uh, basically labs, duration of uh, acidosis, and the ophthalmology exam. Uh, that was a daily basis. So the labs they looked at were hemoglobin, hemocrit, bicarb, serum electrolyte levels, including potassium, uh, ABG, uh, if the methanol was positive, serum protein in osmolar gap. And they were also looking at the duration of the acidosis, which was defined as the time from presentation to correction of the acidosis, uh, i.e. a teen, a pH of 7.35 through therapy. And then on the ophthalmologic uh, exam, so all patients underwent visual testing, color vision assessment, pupillary reaction, including a swinging flashlight test, and a complete ocular examination, including looking for signs of optic disc edema. Ocular problems included in the medical records were blurred vision, decreased visual activity, photophobia, ocular changes that were noted also included dilated pupils, uh, relative afferent pupillary defect, optic disc hyperemia, retinal congestion, and edema, and blurring of the disc margin. And so then they did, they did a three-month follow-up. So the primary outcomes of this was they were assessing the relationship between visual acuity at three months after discharge with the laboratory values as obtained on admission in uh, two groups of patients, patients with transient visual problems uh, at presentation and then uh, patients with uh, permanent visual problems at presentation. So those were they kind of put people into either of those groups. Uh, the secondary outcomes they were looking were determining whether there was a correlation between the pupillary reaction at discharge or the fundus findings that discharge with comparing this with the test that laboratory investigate uh, laboratory exams they did so they there's they had a total of 129 patients admitted with metabolic acidosis to this hospital in that one month period 122 received a confirmed diagnosis of methanol poisoning and of those 122, 97 were included in the study. I think 32 were excluded due to uh, 10 died, four absconded, and 11 were asymptomatic patients. Uh, and seven were found to have metabolic acidosis secondary to cause other than methanol poisoning. So, the, as I said, the patients were grouped into those classified by their visual. Or the patients were classified into 
group two groups according to their visual disturbance disturbances. Group one was transient visual disturbances, and group two was permanent. So the primary outcomes were all tested variables correlated poorly to the final visual acuity, as well as fundus and pupillary changes in group one. Patients and demonstrated poor predictability predictability of the final visual acuity on the multiple regression analysis. Also, all laboratory investigations showed a good correlation in predictability of the final uh, visual acuity in group two. Uh, but the most important thing to get from this paper is that the pH showed the strongest correlation uh, with the final visual acuity among all tested variables in group two, and basically was the strongest predictor of final uh, visual acuity under regression analysis. So. Basically, the pH was the most important value that determined uh, how their vision was going to be uh, in this test or in this paper. So, let's see. So, the investigation, so let me see. Uh, yeah, so also the patients in group one had significantly better visual acuity and presentation. And a final follow up, which makes sense because they had just transient visual loss compared to the patients in group two that had uh, permanent visual loss during their stay and they had worse ones. So that kind of makes sense. Uh, it was also noted that the investigation that all of these variables tested in the first group correlated poorly. Let's see. And oh, yeah, of the laboratory tested analysis, pH was the only one that really showed the strongest correlation. Uh, uh, Potassium levels weren't really associated with anything uh, associated with the visual uh, acuity that they found. And they also thought that uh, hype or that uh, hyperglycemia might be a predictor, but it actually didn't affect this at all. And yes, so I thought this was an interesting paper. Uh, overall, I, it was, they only gave, they only treat the patients they had with ethanol. And then most of them ended up getting hemodialysis, or uh, hemodialysis. So I don't know how much we use this here in the United States, where we have access to fomepazole uh, pretty easily. Uh, there were some limitations in this. It was a retrospective study. It had a pretty short follow-up of three months. And uh, when they evaluated some of these patients, it they didn't like. There wasn't some of these patients just had metabolic acidosis in a cluster outbreak, and they didn't have a hundred percent was clear there as the methanol poison. Uh, but still, I think it, you can draw from this that uh, pH is a good predictor of if they're going to have uh, uh, visual problems in the future, which makes sense because formic acid is an acid. So you know, if you have high, if at presentation you have a very low pH. You probably have large formic acid levels, which means you probably have a large methanol poisoning. So I think from that, if you use that, you might be able to better uh, risk stratify patients you see. And I think there's some issues that they had also with medical legal, where they were worried about people getting it's something I read about about this paper that this could also be used for some medical legal reasonings for uh, people. So like if someone had a Came in with methanol poisoning and had a uh, like blindness and or visual problems in three months. They could be less associated with a physician causing a problem. More like they had a low pH and they came in, it was going to be they were going to have more of a chance of having blindness. Yeah. Yeah. I basically a simple uh, statement is basically that. Uh, 
you know, pH is, seems to correlate it. And like you said, it makes sense. It's like if you drink methanol and it gets blocked immediately, you don't generate formic, so you don't get acidemic, and you, therefore you don't get the downstream effects on your vision, which seems to occur earlier than your brain, which occurs with more severe cases. So if I was, if you wanted to move forward and design a study for something that might prevent visual loss, you can stratify them perhaps by their initial pH, their untreated initial unresuscitated pH, and move forward from there. This was done in a time and a place where only ethanol was available. So you need to take note of that. Promethazole wasn't an option. And as we talk about this global health crisis with methanol, that seems to be um, more of an issue all, all over the place. I want to talk about, uh, I'm going to turn over to talk about two papers that deal with the technique that sounds like it's really super high tech, but it's not. It's called optical coherence tomography. Um, and, and basically, this is a machine that literally, I think, an emergency physician could do, a family physician, a primary care physician do. It almost is like a slit lamp where you put your, if you can sit up, you put your chin in it and your head in it, and this little red light kind of moves side to side, and in 15 seconds, gets a very good image of your retina to see if there is indeed some damage to your retina. So there's a pair of short papers here that Ray's going to tell us about, about using this technique, OCT, um, with methanol. Yeah, uh, I had no idea that such a machine could be used so readily or easily. Um, also, before I dive in, I've had pretty minimal exposure to ophthalmology, so I might miss out on some of the nuances, so appreciate any feedback in that regard. So I have two cases. Um, the first one is from 2017. And just a little bit of background um, beforehand. So specifically, the ophthalmological symptoms start around 6 to 48 hours after intoxication. The pupillary exam may demonstrate dilated, non-reactive pupils, and acutely, the optic disc um, becomes hyperemic and edematous, or as chronically, it can lead to atrophy. Um, small caliber axons of the papular muscular bundle, which are rich in mitochondria, are disproportionately affected. So as for the case itself, uh, for the first one, we have a 19-year-old female who was returning from Indonesia who presented with four weeks of blurred vision, photophobia, and central scotoma. So the night prior to her symptoms beginning in Indonesia, she had homemade liquor and liquor-filled chocolates. She developed nausea, vomiting, and difficulty ambulating. The next morning, she developed generalized malaise and photophobia. Later that evening, she became increasingly somnolent with labored breathing and was brought to the ED where she was intubated for apnea and found to have a metabolic acidosis with a pH of 6.79 and a blood methanol level of 0.6. She was started on IV ethanol, methylprednisone, sodium bicarb with vitamin B12 and dialysis for her metabolic acidosis. She was extubated the following day and noted to have bilateral blurred central vision and photophobia extremity weakness, shuffling gait, microphonia, and micrographia. MRI at that time showed damage to the basal ganglia, hyperintense lesions of the putamen bilaterally, and general hyperintensity of the cerebral cortex consistent with diffuse hypoxic injury. Ophthalmology at that time noted no structural damage. And again, this is all in Indonesia. So four weeks later, she presented to an eye center here in the U.S., 
and her vision remained persistently blurred bilaterally. And on exam this time, her optic nerve appeared abnormal with tilting and mild peripapular atrophy in the right eye and trace segmental pallor of the temporal optic nerve head in the left eye. Grossly, she had a caliboma in her right eye. Visual field testing showed mild central depression in the left eye. Ganglion cell layer analysis showed thickening of the inferior nasal macula secondary to the artifact from the caliboma in the right eye and mild thinning in the nasal macula in the left. Eight months, eight months later, following this um, presentation to the eye center in the US, she had some improvement in vision, but had persistent central blind spots. And the OCT of the macula at that time showed new finding of multiple retinal microcysts nasally in the right and left eye, highly uniform and localized to the inner nuclear layer. So this case was actually the first time the inner nuclear layer microcysts from methanol toxicity had been described. And these microcysts are often seen in various optic neuropathies such as MS, neuromyelitis, optica, and compressive optic disease. So the finding of the inner layer uh, microcysts suggest damage to the retinal ganglion cells and may signify preferential loss of the small caliber axons of the papular macular bundle, which again is rich in mitochondria. So the second case um, is from 2006. And this is a 37-year-old gentleman who spent four days drinking industrial alcohol with 75% methanol and 25% ethanol, 100 milliliters each day. So six days after the initial methanol ingestion, he developed severe photophobia and became totally blind in both eyes the next morning. He arrived to the hospital with methanol levels of 50 mg per deciliter. He was given 40 milliliters of ethanol orally times three at Q4 intervals to inhibit methanol metabolism and four milligrams, four, 50 milligrams of leucocorvin to help accelerate metabolism of the formic acid. On ophthalmological exam, there was mild optic disc hyperemia and severe nerve fiber swelling and retinal edema. There's also some mild hyperfluorescence with late leakage from both optic discs and hypofluorescence of the retina due to the edema. So on OCT, there was severe peripapular nerve fiber swelling and intraretinal fluid accumulation. He was given steroid pulse therapy for three days at one gram a day. And whereas the intraretinal fluid was absorbed, the swelling persisted. His visual acuity gradually recovered to six over 200 OD and four out of 100 um, after two weeks. So while the nerve fiber swelling and edema disappeared, the disc did atrophy. Two years after the event, he went in for follow-up and his visual acuity remained at six over 200 and four over 100. And he had persistent large central scotoma. So in terms of discussion for this second case, um, the authors were saying that, you know, development of optic nerve atrophy couldn't have been prevented. And again, this is from 2006, but the authors mentioned that there are no proven effective treatment for methanol induced ocular toxicity and that they believe the pulse service was not effective. And I know more of this will be talked about later. However, they did say that OCT was incredibly useful in determining the severity of the retinal toxicity. Yeah, so two, 
pay supports basically using this OCT, which is again, a, a, some, you know, once you get the machine, it's an inexpensive and low, 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 relatively low tech machine. The second one really shows sort of the retinal edema much better and does it in an acute phase. So you could say this is something that probably could be done within the first day or so after the um, toxicity to look to see if there's early signs of visual impairment or, or ocular toxicity. I'll note as a footnote that in both of these studies, as I'm finding out, it seems to be prevalent throughout Asia. They got pulse steroids, the first person in uh, Indonesia, the second person in Japan. The first person got back to Boston where she had all the follow-up studies done with OCT and MRIs and everything else that may not be available in other parts of the world. And she had persistent injury to her um, Oh, and I became kind of interested in this when I was preparing to do our orientation lectures for methanol, and I found like a throwaway line in Goldfranks that basically said, oh, and you might be able to use steroids for methanol toxicity. And I am saying, I had not really heard of that, honestly. And so I started drilling down into the rabbit hole of where this comes from. And there are some throwaway case reports and one small case series out there. And we'll try to talk about those and we'll kind of evolve into something even more esoteric at the very end. So our other student, Ali, will tell us about another case of methanol blindness this time treated with adjunctive steroids. Ali? Yeah, so this case, um, pretty short and sweet, um, coming from out of Australia. Um, it's called methanol toxicity, a case of blindness treated with adjunctive steroids. Um, so 42-year-old man presented to um, their emergency, emergency department with sudden bilateral visual loss. Um, 48 hours after consuming home distilled liquor from fermentation of molasses. Um, he reportedly woke up that morning and saw whitewash on awakening, um, but was able to differentiate shapes and shadows. Um, at presentation, his best corrected visual acuity, or his BCVA, was counting fingers only in both eyes. Um, cranial nerve and neurological examinations were otherwise unremarkable. Um, on presentation, his pH was 7.12, um, so not phenomenally low, but it was 48 hours after consumption. Um, he was admitted to the ICU and managed for presumed methanol toxicity with continuous hemodialysis, ethanol infusion titrated to a concentration of one to one and a half milligrams per milliliter, um, bicarbonate and folinic acid. Um, his methanol concentration then came out to 10.8 millimoles per liter um, and his urine tox screening was negative. On day two, his visual acuity deteriorated to no light perception bilaterally um, with a left relative afferent pupillary uh, defect. Um, his opto exam was otherwise grossly normal. Um, both optic nerves appeared pink and not swollen. Um, on day three, his acidosis had improved. Um, hemodialysis was ceased on day four. Um, and it looks like on day four, they um, initiated intravenous dexamethasone four milligrams twice daily and oral thiamine 100 milligrams daily. Um, so after two days on the ward, he was discharged home and continued the oral thiamine at 100 milligrams and prednisolone at 50 milligrams daily for two weeks. Um, at outpatient review two weeks later, his vision was still described as whitewash. Um, his visual ac acuity had improved to 6 out of 36 in the right eye and 6 out of 60 in the left eye. Um, pu poor pupillary responses were noted, um, but again, the optic nerves appeared normal um, on fundoscopic exam. No further treatment was initiated. Um, 
And then MRI showed no evidence of neurological damage. Um, and then he underwent a five-month outpatient review um, where he reported his vision being less washed out than previously. Um, his visual acuity had improved in the right eye to six out of 24. Um, it was previously six out of 36, um, but his left eye was still just at counting fingers. Um, at that point, his fundus examination revealed pale optic discs bilaterally, um, and then they did a uh, an optical CT exam, which showed significant atrophy of the bilateral optic discs. Um, so that's all consistent with optic neuropathy after severe methanol poisoning. Um, and then in their discussion, they talk about, let's see. Um, so they, they cite that 25 to 33% of acute poisonings were found to experience visual sequelae. Um, and that the management of their patient was just based on established methanol guidelines. Um, they do point to a few case studies showing um, attempts at using um, steroids for treatment of visual acuity specifically, um, but nothing particularly conclusive. Um, they do mention that early treatment with steroids may lead to immunosuppression and increase the likelihood of secondary sepsis in these critically unwell patients. Um, and basically the conclusion is just that visual loss from methanol-induced optic neuropathy represents a, a management challenge. So it's something that while this patient did show a little bit of increased visual acuity, it's not very conclusive on if the steroids in this case were the reason for that slightly increased visual acuity. Yeah, that's on day four. And followed him up, and he slowly got a little better, but certainly com not a complete resolution. And they used OCT there again as a way of tracking uh, his retina. Um, so, question is: Does steroids earlier on make a difference? I I found two articles that have the same name by the same group. One was published in. In 2011, one was published three years later, just as an abstract. The abstract has nine patients. The original publication has six patients. I don't have the original, but because it, it's you can't get it. It's from an obscure journal, a journal of ocular pharmacology and therapeutics. Therape and it's called Therapeutic Effects of High-Dose Intravenous Pregnisolone and Methanol-Induced Optic Neuropathy. This is basically a case series out of Iran, where this is, as far as I can tell, pretty common and standard therapy for um, methanol intoxication. These are six patients who developed vision loss after ingesting a homemade alcoholic beverage. Um, they got 250 milligrams of methylpregnisolone Q6 for four days and then switched to oral pregnisolone for a milligram per kilogram for following 10 days. That was their treatment protocol. Doesn't really talk about whether they got dialysis or, or alcohol. Uh, it may not have. Um, I know it was an error where they probably were not getting fomepazole, and they followed this best corrected visual acuity, also OCT, and a fundus photo uh, in all these patients. And they claim uh, that their best visual acuity improved from 0.86 in the right eye and 0.93 in the left eye to 0.33 in the right eye and 0.29 in the left eye. Um, using this scoring system, which is not exactly what we're used to as 2020 or, or anything else, but it dropped by more than half, if not by two thirds. They have p values, which are quite significant, 
for these and that they soar on their uh, visual exam or that their mean macular thickness and cup were unchanged. So somehow the retina is getting better, but what they can see by direct ophthalmoscopic exam is not very impressive. So they conclude, you know, and I don't have all the details from the study because it's not available, is that IV, I-dose, methylprednisolone, given early, may make a difference. The only difference between the abstract they presented three years later was they now had nine patients, which included the original six patients and three patients that got treated late, and those three patients actually didn't do so well. So time may be of the essence here in that giving high-dose steroids early on based on some criteria, whether it's a pH or just a suspicion of methanol intoxication, may help um, improve visual acuity that is not otherwise uh, easy to see just by exam itself. Now, I'm going to throw one last monkey wrench into the whole possible treatment option here with Courtney, our fellow, uh, a different group out of Iran, which uses EPO, orthopoietin, as a treatment. Well, tell us about that. Yes, so this is erythropoietin as an adjunctive treatment for methanol-induced toxic optic neuropathy. Um, and this is a 2016 article out of the American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse out of uh, Tehran. So they introduced the article um, in some of the same ways that Matt mentioned, which, uh, which is that methanol induced optic neuropathy is really seen uh, less commonly here, but in countries where alcohol consumption is banned or really not regulated very well. Um, so they tend to have outbreaks of several patients at a time. Um, and the, they call it MTON, so methanol-induced optic neuropathy. Results in blindness when it's con uh, converted to formic acid, and it, they will go through, and I'll talk a little bit about it in the discussion, the exact mechanism, um, because it's interesting uh, what they're targeting with the EPO. But um, essentially, it inhibits cell cytochrome enzymes. So while the optic findings in the methanol intoxication and sequelae are not super common, these outbreaks are um, really correlated with very poor prognosis, which is why they're targeting um, interventions that might mitigate some of these effects. So EPO is a glycoprotein that stimulates red blood cell differentiation, prevents apoptosis of the erythroid progenitors in the bone marrow, and it may be neuroprotective, which is what they're really looking at. It has a little bit of a neuroregenerative property that reduces um, the apoptosis, but it's also anti-inflammatory and has antioxidant effects. So it's sort of like very general and in broad terms to open um, with their um, hypothesis here. And um, retrograde degeneration of the ganglion cells is what causes the irreversible loss of visual function. So there's there's a couple of different mechanisms. One is loss of the myelin sheath. And then there's the edema, which causes a type of compartment syndrome, is how they describe it, uh, on the nerve fibers. So they do talk about the previous two reports of uh, patients that had gotten steroids and also two smaller, uh, oh, sorry, one small report of two patients with methanol-induced optic neuropathy that had dramatic improvement with um, EPO. So what they did in this study was they did a non-randomized interventional comparative study for what they called recent onset MTON, and that was within two weeks, that was considered recent. So 11 
patients with methanol-induced optic neuropathy were previously treated, and they were treated with the standard of care, which was uh, femepazole and any other uh, interventions needed, like dialysis, anything else that 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 patient needed to correct acidosis or severe illness, um, along with um, folic acid, B12, and then they all also got methylprednisolone. So these are eleven historical historical controls. The second group that they enrolled were a group that got all of those same treatments, but they added on EPO, 2,000 international units for three days. So conventional treatment with the steroid plus the EPO. Um, patients were excluded if they had a history of diabetes, hypertension, hemoglobin over uh, greater than 16, or they didn't want to participate. And some of that was for uh, general considerations for you know, baseline eye uh, or optic abnormalities, but also because of the side effects of erythropoietin. Um, the exams that they conducted to assess for efficacy of this are, uh, like I, I think in every paper that has had to talk about some of the ophthalmologic findings, it's a, a little difficult if you don't understand ophthalmology, but what they did was BCBA, which is best corrected visual acuity, they did the relevant afferent pupillary defect, slit lamp exams, fundoscopy, but also visual field testing, peripapillary retinal fiber layer thickness, and fundus photography. And they did that at one month and six months for the first group, and then just at the final follow-up for the other group. And the main outcome measures were that BCVA, so that corrected visual acuity, the PRNFLT, which is that retinal nerve fiber layer thickness, and then a visual field. And what they found were all of their patients were male, and they were all in the, their mid-30s. And the mean interval between methanol ingestion in both groups was around five days, so it was really the same. Um, the dialysis uh, occurrence in both groups was relatively the same, too. Seven in the EPO group needed dialysis, eight in the control group. And the serum concentrations of methanol averaged 20 in the EPO group and 24 in the control group. So everything was pretty similar, um, which is good because we want to make sure that the um, that one of the groups is not significantly sicker, more acidotic, uh, which may pretend worse uh, optic outcomes, ophthalmologic outcomes. So they, they seemed pretty equal in terms of the degree of their uh, toxicity. Um, they go on to say that their mean BCVA, so that's that corrected visual acuity, improved at month three in the EPO group and also the control group. But in the control group, the BCVA was actually better at presentation, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So the group that did not get EPO showed up and their visual acuity was better. However, at three months, everybody significantly improved. And then at the final follow up, the um, the the BCVA was better for the major intervention group. The second thing was the PRNFLT, so the retinal nerve fiber layer thickness. That decreased in both groups. However, it was significantly thinner in the control group at the final follow-up. And part of that is when you dig into some of their data, nine of the 11 uh, intervention cases, and four of the 11 controls were able to perform the visual field testing at the final follow-up. So, 
we have to keep that in mind. Um, and then as an important point, there were no differences in uh, blood pressure or polycythemia in either group, which is just important because those are some of the side effects of erythropoietin. So um, in the group that got the EPO, nine out of 11, so remember I just said nine of the 11 intervention interventional cases were able to perform the visual field testing. Their visual acuity was considered less than light perception. So these patients had terrible uh, optic findings when they first were evaluated. The BCVA, the visual acuity, and then the retinal fiber thickness, so both structural and functional improvements were noted in the treatment group. Um, so they go on to talk a little bit about why they think that this may be beneficial. So optic neuropathy and methanol ingestion is from the direct effects of the formic acid, but the acidosis can facilitate formic acid diffusion into the cells, increasing the toxicity. And then the nerve head, they really go into a lot of very technical ophthalmology um, specifics here, but the nerve head and the retrolaminar region are the primary affected sites. So you end up with optic edema, central necrosis of the optic nerve, and then damage to the, the axon. And then the edema, specifically from formic acid binding to the cytochrome oxidase that I had mentioned earlier, causes hypoxia, depletes your ATP, interrupts your uh, conduction, and, and causes axoplasmic stasis. Um, so it, essentially, the optic fibers are much more susceptible to formic acid injury, especially when there are fewer reserves of, sort of mitochondrial um, and cytochrome oxidase um, in that in that uh, specific area. Um, so steroids, we've talked a little bit about before, both groups got steroids. They've, there's not been any large randomized control trials. It's not really part of any guidelines. And there are these several small case series, like Zane was just talking about, to address uh, MTON in stable patients. But their theory was because damaged myelin sheets swell, compress the nerve fibers, steroids may decrease the nerve head edema, may improve that compartment syndrome. And then EPO comes in with these sort of uh, secondary effects, stimulating the uh, red blood cell progenitors and maybe preventing some of that hypoxia-induced injury, having some direct neural protection, anti-apoptotic glial protection, and potentially improved blood, improved blood flow. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, theoretical benefit to this. The, the outcomes, um, I, th I think they showed the improvement. I think it's very difficult to say all of these patients had very diminished uh, visual acuity when they, when they were first evaluated. It's a small number of patients. It's not randomized, but the historical controls are a great idea. Um, so if you have it and it's not that expensive, you could consider using EPO as an adjunct to treatment with steroids. Can't say without, but. Yeah, I mean, a, kind of a fascinating pilot study, something I think I never would have considered. Obviously, I don't know, some sort of animal model, but it's hard to do visual acuity in animals. I have some way you have to be able to see what happens would be a sort of a next step before you start doing a randomization of the next methanol epidemic outbreak that occurs, but, but interesting. Um, you know, as sort of a take home message for the end, and any comments anyone has, you know, I think if, if you were dealing with a methanol occurrence, whether it's here in the US or anywhere, 
and you have multiple patients, I think the main thing is to get them to a place where they can be treated, ideally with clomipazole, but giving them pre-hospital alcohol in the absence of that makes sense. Giving them IV bicarb to correct their pH makes sense. And perhaps, although on weak data, treating anybody with a low pH, despite that, to find that as you may, maybe less than 7.2, perhaps they get a bolus dose of methylpregnisolone and as much as 10 days of treatment, at least according to what's done internationally in other places around the world. Then you can talk about all the things that we usually do here, which is the methasol and dialysis. But then before they leave the hospital, it's something we haven't done, and maybe we start insisting on more, is some kind of ophthalmologic evaluation needs to take place at a minimum of visual acuity Perhaps someone looking who's capable of looking in the back of their eyes, looking for edema, if they can do an OCT, I mean, this is not a complicated nor particularly expensive uh, thing to do, to see where there are at post-acute resuscitation, and then they can be followed up with these modalities, especially if we're going to maybe do a randomized trial. If someone can do a randomized study, steroids, repo, or steroids and EPO with four arms. But some food for thought. And I'm interested to hear what anybody else uh, has to say. Um, we're, we're always dealing with these one-off kind of cases, but the hand sanitizer incident happening as a COVID shows that we're not immune to little epidemic outbreaks. So something we should be uh, ready for. So any uh, thoughts from our crew? And I thank everyone for participating and presenting their, their articles. All right, well, I will see you next quarter when we do our next recorded uh, journal club on some controversial topic again, on the, who's to say? And uh, thanks everyone for participating. I just had a quick question about the presentation tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering kind of the format, how long? Oh, for doing a, doing journal club? Yeah, that's, that's fine. I mean, not- Oh, sorry, the disaster, um, the disaster presentation tomorrow? Oh, that um, anywhere up to an hour is fine. I mean, some disaster, you know, usually we, we, we kind of say if you could do some slides because there's interesting photos often, if you want to show some pathophysiology or something behind it, that's fine too. I'd say at least 30 minutes on the format, upwards of up to an hour if need be. Okay. I'll stay as long as people need to stay. Um, and I'll remind, I guess, uh, our, our critical care fellows here you want to do for the last day of the rotation a either a disaster or a higher level tox thing or something that's toxin critical care related uh we'll do that but most of the friday afternoon things are these historical toxins and the same thing applies for for our em fellow does the same thing so the last friday be a little bit longer because this will be three or four presentations okay total. sorry i just i'm still slightly confused so i'm on a two-week rotation right now okay didn't realize that so you still get oh, yeah. the same thing. It is uh, you do uh, two disaster presentations at the end of each Friday, one okay. tomorrow, and you hopefully, and one the following Friday. Okay. And so each presentation uh, is thirty minutes to an hour. Correct. Okay. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Great. We'll see everyone tomorrow then. See you tomorrow. Bye. Yeah. But like, so, if my perspective uh, review of some charts.